Okay, check this guy out. Notice his rainbow flag. Notice what he says about BLM and Antifa, and then let's talk about it. BLM, Antifa, Boogaloo, and right-wing militias, they are the antibodies, not the disease that is destroying our country. So he mentions Boogaloo, which I've looked up, and it's considered to be a right-wing movement. But he lumps them all together. Listen again. BLM, Antifa, Boogaloo, and right-wing militias. And right-wing militias. Boogaloo and right-wing militias in the same sentence as Antifa and BLM. And he says nothing bad about any of them. He says they are the antibodies, not the disease. So like Danny Sherson says he often does, I turn to Wikipedia. What I read here both matches and doesn't match what I hear this guy saying. The Boogaloo movement, whose adherents are often referred to as Boogaloo Boys or Boogaloo B-O-I-S, is a loosely organized far-right, anti-government, and extremist political movement in the United States. The movement has also been described as a militia. And as they are often heavily armed, that seems to be a fair thing to say. Boogaloo adherents say they are preparing for or seek to incite a second American civil war which they call the Boogaloo. Boogaloo has been used on the image board website 4chan, an image board known for the posting of illegal and offensive content since 2012, but it did not come to widespread attention until late 2019. Adherents use Boogaloo, including variations, so as to avoid social media crackdowns to refer to violent uprisings against the federal government or left-wing political opponents. Note, they're not saying left-wing radicals, they're saying politicians, and so they're not necessarily left-wing compared to, say, you and me. Often anticipated to follow government confiscation of firearms. And I've said before on this show that perhaps leftist militias are going to be needed in the battles with our government to come. If you really believe the duopoly is corrupt, as the Boogaloo boys seem to believe, then you will need arms to take care of that problem. As I've said over and over and over, we're not going to get out of this through any kind of electoral process. Now the next paragraph says that some Boogaloo groups are racist, white supremacist, or neo-Nazi groups. But as we continue with this other clip, you'll see that this particular group is not of that ilk. There are also groups that condemn racism and white supremacy, although attempts by some individual elements of the movement to support anti-racist groups and movements such as Black Lives Matter have been met with wariness and skepticism as researchers are unsure if they are genuine or meant to obscure the movement's actual objectives. The movement primarily organizes online and participants have appeared at in-person events including the anti-lockdown and the George Floyd protests. Heavily armed, Boogaloo members are often identified by their attire of Hawaiian shirts and military fatigues. As I read through the rest of the article, it's difficult to tell whether they are serious about their left-sounding causes. They've been mixed up in George Floyd protests, but they've also been mixed up in storming the Capitol building. They seem to be very anti-police. And as we go back to this clip, you'll hear this guy say other things that jive with left-wing ideology. Since we are only three seconds in, I'm gonna go back and start over. BLM, Antifa, Boogaloo, and right-wing militias, they are the antibodies, not the disease that is destroying our country. The disease is a country run by two corrupt political parties that do not care about you. Right. So deeply, deeply, so deeply incestuous with corporations that they are indistinguishable from each other. Right. A government that spent six months debating whether to give their own people six hundred dollars, but only twenty-four hours to unanimously agree to give billions of dollars to foreign tyrannical governments and corporations. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. A government that has bombed villages overseas my entire life for my supposed safety here. Right. This is a call for unity. For all of American people that realize the true threat against us to come together. For every mother mourning the ch- or children that was killed by police. For every business crushed down by state lockdowns. For every broken soldier sent to fight wars that have no point. This is our last chance to avoid either a tyrannical civil, a tyrannical government, or a bloody and pointless civil war among American people who do not have that much against each other and have more in common than they realize. And a message to the government: We come in peace. We do not intend to commit violence. But I am pleading with you, with tears in my eyes and cracks in my voice, if you continue to oppress the American people, they will remain rational. No longer. Thank you. So apparently there were a lot of other people associated with the Boogaloo Boys around in this crowd. Nobody was disagreeing with any of the things that guy said. I didn't hear anything that didn't jive with left-wing ideology. He wants to abolish the police and he doesn't like needless wars. There were rifles prominently displayed. A very interesting point he made was that right and left-wing populists should band together. He said that our differences are minor. One thing I was listening intently for was an idea of how he felt about economic justice. I heard him say something about stimulus checks, which also made me think he was on the right side of things. We should probably keep our eye on this movement and see what good may come from it. Here's a piece by Keaton Weiss from American Greatness, which he describes as a right-wing publication. Again, we need to keep thinking about what left and right actually mean, and we need to figure out also what populism means not to mention fascism. Traditionally, right and left-wing thinkers should probably agree about censorship, and that's what this article is about. The establishment's assault on free speech arrives ahead of schedule. A unified democratic government, an unaccountable and out-of-control tech oligarchy, and a woke-obsessed corporate sector is about to descend upon us mercilessly. The alliance between the liberal establishment and big tech has been entrenched for so long that it's difficult to discern where one ends and the other begins. It became obvious in the aftermath of Donald Trump's 2016 election victory that this amorphous yet coordinated power structure would stop at nothing to ensure that no one like him could ever win again. The perpetuation of Russiagate, the blacklisting of Alex Jones, and the dragging of Mark Zuckerberg into Congress to try and browbeat him into even further submission illustrate this strategy. The political party and its media allies, which have spent the past five years parroting each other's talking points about what a grave threat Trump poses to our constitutional norms, were simultaneously and systematically undermining the First Amendment using every tool at their disposal. From media propaganda to cultural signaling to congressional hearings about the need for outlets like Facebook and Twitter to crack down harder upon misinformation and hate speech. Given all of this, it makes sense to assume that the incoming Biden administration would kick these efforts into overdrive in an attempt to revert the public discourse back to its pre-internet era where only well-established and well-funded outlets could widely disseminate news and opinion. The events of January 6th, however, have accelerated this mission into, if you will, warp speed. 
In the days following the Stop the Steal rally, which evolved or rather devolved into an angry mob of Trump supporters storming the Capitol, vandalizing federal property, and delaying the certification of the Electoral College vote, we've already seen radical action taken by tech platforms against those they deem suspicious and threatening. This includes the president himself, who is now permanently suspended from both Facebook and Twitter, but there's more. Brandon Straka, architect of the hashtag walkaway campaign aimed at convincing people to leave the Democratic Party, tweeted last week that Facebook had erased all of his content, including hundreds of thousands of his followers' testimonial videos, and banned him and his entire team from their platform. Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell have also been banned from Twitter in recent days, as have numerous accounts linked to the QAnon conspiracy theory. Additionally, employers are now beginning to terminate their employees upon discovery of their mere presence at the rally, whether or not they participated in any of the day's unlawful activity. All of the thousands of protesters who showed up are cavalierly being branded as seditionists, insurrectionists, traitors, and domestic terrorists, even those who didn't break any laws by the mainstream media as well as by President Biden. Whatever one's opinions are about the events of January 6th, it's unquestionable at this point that the response from the liberal establishment has been a show of force intended to communicate that moving forward, they will be much quicker to crack down on unsanctioned speech and outside the mainstream opinion. The incoming president, President Biden, giants of social media and big tech and traditional media behemoths have all been on this same page. We've already witnessed the swiftness with which they can and will exercise their power to suppress free expression. Perhaps most disturbingly, the private sector as a whole is hearing their warnings loud and clear and responding accordingly, going as far as to terminate their workers' employment for their mere attendance at the rally. The goal of all this goes beyond preventing further chaotic and violent events like those of January 6th, it is to shut down the free exchange of ideas so that circumstances leading to such an event never again arise, an exercise that is inherently anti-constitutional as freedom of speech is predicated upon the underlying belief that words and actions are and must remain separable. After four years of an outsider like Donald Trump in the White House, we are about to inaugurate the epitome of a Washington institutionalist. Along with Biden's presidency will come an ongoing effort by the establishment to rebuild the Bastille in such a way that it's never breached again, from the right or from the left, by any political figure or movement coming without their pre-approval. This looming hegemony, whose mothership is the White House and the Capitol, but whose satellites extend far beyond that, is the single greatest threat to freedom of speech this country has faced since the McCarthy era. The perfect storm of a unified democratic government, an unaccountable and out-of-control tech oligarchy, and a compliant, woke-obsessed corporate sector that will sell out everything and everyone for a good quarterly earnings report is about to descend upon all of us with crushing might and mercilessness. No one is safe inside or outside the Capitol. Now we finish up with Barry and Sondahl's second installment on fascism. This one is called Trump and Fascism. It is not uncommon to see Trump portrayed as a fascist. The presidential election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden was often framed as a battle against fascism. Dr. Cornell West said, What we got to vote for was the mediocre, milquetoast, neoliberal centrist because he's better than fascism, and a fascist catastrophe is worse than a neoliberal disaster. 
If you've been following this show for a while, you'll know that I took exceptional offense to what Dr. Cornell West said. He told us it's better to vote for Biden, which makes him a neoliberal sheepdog. And I had always hoped much better from him. Lesser evil voting is why I started this channel in the first place. You'll also remember that both Birian and Joe Brunoli have said that fascism is a system and not a person, and we've had it for a long time in this country. Joe Brunoli especially lays out the entire history of American fascism. I'll try to remember to link to that show in the show notes as well as these articles. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, We need to win in November. We need to win in November. November is about, in my opinion, stopping fascism in the United States. That is what Donald Trump represents. So, Alexandria, that is a shit-lib statement, pure and simple. Mark Brodine, chair of the Washington State Communist Party, USA, wrote an article entitled, Want to Stop Fascism in America? Defeat Trump in November. I would have hoped much better from the chair of the Washington State Communist Party. These portrayals all equated defeating Trump with defeating fascism. The problem with this framing is that it takes far too narrow a view of defeating fascism. Trump is a figurehead of fascism, but he does not represent the systems that create a fascist environment. Ding, ding, ding! Fascism, first and foremost, is a system, not a cult of personality. Trump is full of fascist rhetoric, as his recent speech inciting violence at the Capitol illustrates. Indeed, Trump embodies the definition of fascism given by Jason Stanley in a recent NPR interview, so fascism is a cult of the leader who promises national restoration in the face of supposed humiliation by minorities, liberals, and immigrants. So if fascism is a person, then I can see the point. But it isn't. As Birian is about to point out, there can be no doubt that Trump is a fascist threat, but defeating Trump is not synonymous with defeating fascism. It is not enough to remove one man. The system that enables fascism must be replaced as well. And Biden is the embodiment of that system. Biden, Obama, Clinton, both Bushes. That's the system of fascism. Even Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. If you want to defeat fascism, you have to dismantle that entire system. It is dangerous to consider the removal of Trump a victory over fascism. While Trump spoke like a fascist, his policies were primarily those of neoliberalism. As William Robinson describes, the Trump regime's public discourse of populism and nationalism, for example, bore no relation to its actual policies. Exactly. In its first year, Trumponomics involved deregulation, the virtual smashing of the regulatory state, slashing social spending, dismantling what remained of the welfare state, privatizations, tax breaks to corporations and the rich, and an expansion of state subsidies to capital. In short, neoliberalism on steroids. The Democratic establishment happily voted for many of these policies, including funding for ICE, extending the Patriot Act, and approving increasingly large military budgets. When it comes to policy, Trump differed little from Reagan, Clinton, the Bushes, and Obama. He was primarily a tool for corporations and the military-industrial complex, though at times he bucked their wishes on such matters as the TPP and withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. As Walden Bellow explains, neoliberalism had been central to the concurrent and seemingly irreversible economic crisis of the United States. Trump was a continuation of neoliberal policies, not a departure from the status quo. Removing Trump without removing neoliberalism is a recipe for disaster. 
While his policies reinforced status quo neoliberalism, Trump departed from the usual neoliberal politician in that he was open about his white supremacy and racism. That's not to say that previous politicians in both parties were not also white supremacists and racist. This gave a voice to a white supremacist movement that has always existed in the United States. Much like Woodrow Wilson did with the KKK, Trump empowered the far-right extremists such as the Proud Boys, Three Percenters, Boogaloo Boys, The Right Stuff, V Dare, and other hate groups. That's very interesting. So the Proud Boys are listed with the Boogaloo Boys as part of the same movement. And yet we just saw them speaking positively about Antifa and BLM. I think we're going to have to think more about how we characterize these groups. If you're raising objections right now in your mind, think about the white supremacist part and absolutely condemn it. But at the same time, understand that our economic system inflames these kinds of hatreds. Neoliberalism has ensured that there isn't enough for everyone. One of the biggest reasons people have a hard time trusting each other is when there isn't enough to go around. If movements like this can figure out how to stop hating other people and just hate the government, then we have a chance. And if you don't yet hate our government, you haven't been paying much attention to it. We need to work together and we need to overthrow the status quo that keeps all of us in poverty. Well, actually, it doesn't keep all of us in poverty. The shitlibs seem to be doing fine. An FBI report shows that white supremacist extremist groups were responsible for more homicides between 2000 and 2016 than any other domestic extremist movement. Many of these groups have ties with law enforcement and military. That's interesting because if we ever were going to overthrow our government, we'd need to have ties with law enforcement and military. No matter how well-armed right-wing and left-wing militia are, they're not going to overthrow law enforcement and the military if they're on opposite sides. As Michael German documented in a 2019 report, the Plainview Project documented 5,000 patently bigoted social media posts by 3,500 accounts identified as belonging to current and former law enforcement officials. That's the part of the equation that I don't have an answer for. Until we get rid of the patently bigoted ideas, which may take a generation to do, we're going to be in trouble. When the Stop the Steal insurrectionists enter the Capitol, he's calling them insurrectionists, Members of the Capitol Police were seen mingling with them and taking selfies. It's a good point. Why would the military-industrial complex just let everybody take over the Capitol? You know that if they had wanted to seal it off, they absolutely could have. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, police tossed a water bottle to armed militia members and told them, We appreciate you being here. That same night, Kyle Rittenhouse murdered two BLM protesters. The Trump administration directed federal law enforcement to make public comments sympathetic to Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah, that's obviously not going to work. Trump's ability to incite far-right violence came to a head at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. It has been reported that 28 law enforcement officers from 12 states were at the rally there. As historian Timothy Snyder said in an interview with Democracy Now!, there are several kinds of white supremacist and extreme right-wing paramilitaries who are appearing at the Capitol. Let's stop here for a moment. Left-wing, before the French Revolution, meant you sided with the people. Right-wing meant you sided with the monarchy. I don't think these white supremacists side with the monarchy, or in this case, the oligarchy. On the contrary, they're revolting against it. Left-wing is the side of the people. Right-wing is the side of the king. These guys are not siding with the king. Back to the quotation, 
They are getting mixed in now with members of the police. And this is extremely dangerous. Yes, it is, because it's that mixture of outside the state, outside the law, paramilitaries and police forces, or policemen who start to go over onto the other side, which is very characteristic of the way fascist regimes come to power. But yet it's also a way to take fascist regimes out of power. We need to never forget that. With more rallies and violence planned, these groups are the true fascist threat. Now wait a minute. The system is the problem, and if they are overthrowing the system, how are they the true fascist threat? Now I'm friends with Birian on Facebook. I hope he'll watch this and he'll have some kind of a comment to offer. Let me start that sentence over. With more rallies and violence planned, these groups are the true fascist threat, not just the figurehead of Trump. Trump simply emboldened and unleashed the hostility of the white nationalists that had been boiling underneath the surface. Now let me read that sentence again and substitute populists for nationalists. And if they're really populists, it won't matter if we call them white populists or black populists, so let's just call them populists. True populists know who their enemy is and who their enemy is not. So make that assumption and let me read it again. Trump simply emboldened and unleashed the hostility of the populists that had been boiling underneath the surface. So if that's the way you read it, that may include you. It definitely includes me. I am a populist. I hate the way our government has preyed upon its own people. And so the last sentence of the paragraph reads very differently in that context. This violent hatred will remain even as Trump leaves the presidency. And this violent hatred should remain until the government is overthrown. And yes, that is a left-wing thought. If you consider yourself to be a left-winger, you'll understand what I'm trying to say. And the censorship that will undoubtedly come down on me because I'm saying this is not because I'm right or left. And that's why all of us should fight censorship no matter how it rears its ugly head. In addition to the empowerment given by Trump, these fascist movements have been gaining momentum due to a growing sense of victimhood. Now again, Birian, why do you call them fascist movements? Let's read it again with the word populist. In addition to the empowerment given by Trump, these populist movements have been gaining momentum due to a growing sense of victimhood. Populist movements have a right to feel victimized. Let's read it another way. In addition to the empowerment given by Trump, these fascist and anti-fascist movements have been gaining momentum due to a growing sense of victimhood. And now finally, let's say it this way. In addition to the empowerment given by Trump, in addition to leftist leaders, these anti-fascist movements have been gaining momentum due to a growing sense of victimhood. Then you have the people rising up together and overthrowing neoliberalism and fascism. I think you could make the point, Birian, that fascism and neoliberalism are one and the same thing. That's the point we need to make for Dr. Cornell West. And that's the point we need to make for all controlled opposition shit-lib sheepdogs. Now this next sentence is confusing because he uses the word petite bourgeoisie differently than I would have used it. I would call the petite bourgeoisie the PMC, professional managerial class. And I haven't noticed that they're feeling that victimized but I'll read it the way he wrote it. Members of the petite bourgeoisie and working class are feeling justifiably victimized. I don't know why you're linking them together. Rather than blaming the real culprit, late stage capitalism, they are instead using immigrants and minorities as scapegoats. I'll have to think about that. This is the appeal of fascism and why so many people follow Donald Trump's lead. 
His hateful rhetoric played on the perceived victimization of millions who were already predisposed to racism and white nationalism through living in a settler colonial state. As Trotsky described, the cycle leading to fascism includes the despair of the petty bourgeoisie, its yearning for change, the collective neurosis of the petty bourgeoisie, its readiness to believe in miracles, its readiness for violent measures, the growth of hostility towards the proletariat, which has deceived its expectations. These are the premises for a swift formation of a fascist party and its victory. One thing's for sure, it's a class war, and it's hard to figure out which side is which sometimes. The main problem I'm having with Burian's depiction here is that it isn't corporations against the people. He's still framing it as people against people. The petty bourgeoisie are not corporations, at least not huge multinational corporations, and they are the true enemy. They are the true fascists, if you look back at Joe Brunoli's history. Mussolini called it corporationism, and corporationism is fascism. This description that I'm about to read seems confused about that. This is an accurate description of Trumpism and the fascist threat it poses. The disenfranchisement of the petty bourgeoisie by capitalist crisis creates an environment ripe for fascist movements. But again, I think that would make more sense if you substituted anti-fascist movements and were propagandized over and over by the narrative managers into believing that it's other people's fault, it's immigrants' fault, it's welfare moms' fault, and that's not really the problem. We need to blame corporations relentlessly. Back to the story. In an angry tirade against immigrants and the inaction of Democratic politicians, Ashley Babbitt, who died during the failed insurrection, said, What we do have is a massive amount of pissed off people like I am because you guys won't sit down and do your jobs. This is the insidious nature of fascism, the ability to tap into the anger of the petite bourgeoisie and turn it into violence against immigrants, minorities, and the proletariat rather than against the ruling class. That actually made sense. I think it would help if we had Birion on to explain what he's trying to say in the midst of my confusion about what he's trying to say. As Georgi Dimitrov explained, what is the source of the influence of fascism over the masses? Fascism is able to attract the masses because it demagogically appeals to their most urgent needs and demands. So my confusion is whether the people are the fascists or the corporations are the fascists. If the people are just being duped, then they're not really fascists. Trump is a fascist, Mussolini is a fascist, but the system is what they use to exploit the masses. I don't think it's right to call the petty bourgeoisie and the other masses fascists. Donald Trump campaigned and won in 2016, promising to repeal Obamacare and replace it with something terrific. While this was a lie, it did not stop him from gaining votes in 2020, even in a losing campaign. Sort of like when Biden promised $2,000 checks would be going out the door immediately. Neoliberal policies do nothing to appeal directly to the material needs of the people, and the promise of something different from the status quo was an offer that many could not resist. Joe Biden won the election because of the promise of those $2,000 checks, by the way. There are many angry people like Ashley Babbitt, and when neoliberal Democrats offer them nothing, they are likely to turn to the false hope of fascist promises of a Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley. Now that makes sense. So I'll give Birian the last word here in hopes that he'll come on and help us in the future. The threat of fascism did not end with Donald Trump's defeat, and it is only continuing to grow today.